Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 342 and my conversation with the Director of Percussion Studies at the Vandercook College of Music in Chicago, Illinois, James Yakis. We'll check back in with him soon. We continue to press on towards the end of the semester, and among other things, that's meant a lot of concerts. I went to something like seven or eight this past weekend, extended, and lots of grading, and students and faculty just hanging out for dear life. To get through the final few weeks, self-included, we are so close, and yet... All right, enough about that. Let's get to Jim Yakis. I'd been aware of Jim for a while, but he and I finally had a chance to meet in the fall when he was one of the many folks helping to judge our annual Champion of Champions Marching Band Festival. He gave a clinic to the percussion studio and the Marching Wazoo drumline, which I was unfortunately unable to attend, but we still got to connect, and it was great to get a chance to chat with him here in this format. Jim has been at the whole percussion thing for a while now. Prior to his time at his current school, which is one of the more unique programs in the country at Vandercook, he previously taught at the University of Texas at Arlington, where a previous podcast guest Andrew Eldridge currently teaches at, and has been heavily involved in many marching activities, including steel band and others elsewhere in the percussion world. Throughout those activities, he's also been connected with others connected to Mizzou, including previous podcast guests Troy Hall and Cliff Walker. We have a good time throughout and get to those and many other topics, so let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on April 7th, 2023, and it begins... Right now. Jim, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are at this point. Um, I am the director of percussion at Vandercook College of Music in Chicago, and that is pretty much most of my time. Um, that entails most of the normal things. I'd, I'd say I'm weighted a little bit more towards non-percussionist teaching than most people. We have a big continuing ed program. I do online classes, but all the normal um, methods, classes, percussion ensemble, percussion lessons, secondary lessons. Um, one thing we don't have, <clears throat> which was part of the draw for me, was a marching program <laughs> because I've done plenty of years of that. So um, on the side, I do any playing, adjudicating, clinicking I, I can possibly do without becoming more unhealthy or getting a divorce. So I take on everything. Mm -hmm. um, my students kind of know me as uh, say yes and figure it out later kind of guy. So, yeah, that's kind of it. And I have two kids. I'm married and my kids are 12. Um, so, oh, my God. They're not 12. I, I, I don't know why this is so hard for all parents getting their kids' ages right. 14, and my daughter just turned 11. So there you go. Sorry, kids. <laughs> Fair enough. So yeah. tell me about getting the position at Vandercook where you were before, the status of the program when you arrived, those things. I was teaching down in Texas at University of Texas at Arlington. Um, I was an adjunct position. Well, actually, when I left, it was full-time instructor. Um, and I was also teaching at a couple high schools. It's so easy to get so many private lesson students in Texas. You can fill as much of your day as you want. So I was doing that a couple times a week. Um, and it was actually a Vic Firth announcement that came across my email. Um, and I had looked into the school and it, it was 
kind of everything I wanted at that that point in my career. Um, and I went through. And when it, what's the year here? Um, this was 2014, 2015, uh, spring of spring of 15, okay. spring of 15. Yep. Um, and I had not finished my DMA yet. And everyone says, oh, God, you've got to finish that thing before you take a job or you'll never finish it. And they were partly right. Um, <laughs> but I know we can't be there's the other side of it. We can't be that picky either, because if you apply for a job and you get it, you can't. It's so competitive. You can't say, no, thank you. I'd like to finish my last recital. So. All the normal application things. Um, I looked in the school. I loved it. My wife and I are from up north here, so um, getting back closer to our family was great. Um, I had the normal um, through the grind kind of interview that you hear about. Uh, that you fly in, you you try to research the equipment. You know, you do everything. You teach lessons. You recital. You meet with a bunch of people, and then you hop on a plane. Kind of the same deal. I joke with our undergraduate dean, Stacy Dolan, because she um, she's from Lake Park High School, which is a uh, historically a big marching band program. And I'm from a big high school program as well. And during the interview with her, we realized that we actually com- competed against each other in high school. So we were talking and then I realized it was like five minutes into my recital time. So I had to run over to the other building. And of course, by that and, and it was the whole student body in the hall waiting for me. And I walk on stage and. Of course, no warm up. You never really get that. And I realized I left my mallet bag in Stacy's office. So I had to very politely. The first thing on my concert was, <clears throat> thank you for having me today. If you could just give me a couple minutes, I forgot my mallet bag. So great, great impression. But um, it went fine. And uh, I got a call a couple weeks later and moved the whole fam up to uh, Chicago area. So that's pretty much it. And the status of the program. A good friend of mine now and uh, a well-known percussion educator, uh, Kevin Lepper, had the program. I think he was here for 19 years, um, and it was in great shape. Actually, he had a huge studio, um, and then I took it over, and it went down a little bit, and we have COVID, and we're kind of consistently building it back up, which is great, um, but he's great. Um, there have been uh, this school, um, Haskell Har taught at this school. So I have Haskell Har's gig. So it's kind of a, a cool thing because when I was younger, I started on that book. And when I got it, got in here and started snooping around a little bit, I found like his temple blocks and some old arrangements, handwritten things. And it was just really cool. So it, it's the, the college has been around since 1929, um, kind of started the music ed conservatory model, kind of music ed only thing. And of course you got the history of being in Chicago and especially the percussion history of being in Chicago, which was great. So I just told, uh, I just told people the other day um, when I was introducing Kevin at our day of percussion, if there's one advice I can tell people when they get a job is try not to go in with an agenda, like assess the situation, see what's going well. And even if you have a different way of doing it, try their way at first, you know, it's just going to ease you into it. And the first job, I think, is gaining respect of everyone around you. So whatever you can do to get your students and your fellow faculty and staff to respect you. And I thought that was the best way. Kevin had a lot of things rocking, you know, so I did it his way because I was a little older when I got the position. I wasn't like in my 20s. We won't discuss age. But um, I mean, I felt like I had a little bit of wisdom when I got here and the transition was was pretty nice. I Brett Kuhn was teaching here a little bit um, because him and Kevin have a a past history too. And uh, Kevin was the director of applied studies. So he was able to bring Brett in and Brett and I had known each other a little bit from the marching activity. So it was great. I, I think it was a smooth transition in that way. 
you know, moving a family from Fort Worth to Chicago is rough. We still have boxes we haven't unpacked, and this is eight years in. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's rough. You'll get to it, or you yeah. won't. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> when you first get there, what, what are the things you mentioned, kind of what was what Kevin was doing that was going well? What were you seeing as the things where you're like, this was going well, but I can still, I, I feel like I have a take on this that I can, that I can really bring and, and kind of grow this portion. Kevin's commitment, the, the kind of person Kevin is, is really what made him, and he wasn't just influential in the percussion studio, but in the whole college. Like he was, um, he just has a, a magnetic personality and his dedication to the students, his personality really fit this small college. He's the kind of guy that if he's getting a lot of attention somewhere, he'll pull aside some kid and remember like a lesson the kid had three weeks earlier. And he'll he'll say, hey, how are you doing on that, you know, Pratt solo that I saw you play three months ago? And the kid's like, whoa, what, you know, his relationship with the students and all the alums. um, I tell him the story all the time is, you know, my first year I'd be at our Midwest booth or whatever. And people would say, oh, are you uh, is Kevin gone? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, Kevin retired. And they'd be, oh, I love Kevin. And then they'd <laughs> I love Kevin, too. I love Kevin, too. So it was just, you know, obviously he was so influential in this college. So I do everything I can to get him back on campus and to ask him questions. I stopped calling him like every couple of days and I would just come up with a Kevin list about the college. So I recommend that if you're if you're friends or uh, in contact with the person that had your job don't bug them too much but i would make like a list okay now the kevin list is up to 20 let me call him on a saturday and ask him about that so he was doing all that stuff wonderfully and everything else w- was great too so i hate to say anything that I, I i would hate to assume that i'm improving improving upon him at all i i would say maybe uh some of the national exposure of the, the studio you know we've been doing some basic things and kind of more, and I think this has to do, again, I don't want to say anything detrimental about the job Kevin was doing, but he got so involved at the college level. Like he was director of applied studies. Um, I haven't dipped my toe into administration if I ever want to. I have never done that. So I can solely focus on the percussion studio. So I feel like that's been a little bit of an advantage. You know what I mean? That he, he really was involved in the, the, some of the big decisions of the college. Well, tell me a little bit more about the school, because you said that it's a, it's a school of music, does not have a marching band. What is the student body like? Where do they come from? Those kinds of things. So Vandercook was a cornet player and teacher, actually from Michigan, where I'm from. And he opened a small school in Chicago, and then it became a college in 1929. Um, and it was designed just to solely train music educators. So it grew from a trumpet cornet school into a like band director school. Hmm. Um, and the way a lot of us describe it is, you know, extract a music ed department from any big college and give it its own college. That's what we are. So uh, I was just talking to our president yesterday. We may be one of the smallest independent colleges in the country. I think she said, I think there's a smaller theology school somewhere or whatever. We have undergraduate degrees. We have a couple different kinds of graduate degrees. Um, We have two. One's called an M-cert. So this is if you get your undergrad in like music business or performance or therapy and you want to teach, you can come to the college and get all your ed classes and certification in two years and two summers. 
And then we have a regular Masters of Music Ed. And I think we were one of the first. I, I can't, don't quote me on this, but we were the, one of the first to have the summer program that was kind of designed for teachers. So the, the Music Ed Masters does not meet during the year. That's changing a little bit now. But um, traditionally, it's been three summers where all these teachers come on campus for the summer, and in three summers, they can get their Masters. It's been very popular through the years. Now, I, I know with online and everything, many universities are hopping on board to make it easier. And then we, we have a new degree called uh, Pedagogy and Performance, which is tailored towards people who are interested in music ed but want to kind of shade towards the performance side or open up their own studio. So know they want to be a teacher and know they want to maybe make a living as being a teacher but maybe not being a large ensemble director or public school teacher. So we're, we're getting some traction on that. A lot, of, a lot of my percussion alums are like, oh, I would have totally done that, you know, if you would have had that. It takes, you know, it's rare that you have a percussionist that is really passionate about wind playing because it's so specialized what we do. So I think that kind of covers it. And the uniqueness, you know, I could go out, there could be a whole podcast on this college, but the uniqueness of the college is really, um, and what rubbed me the right way when I was teaching in Texas, and again, I don't want to give any disparaging marks uh, behind anyone. I, I, most of my friends are still in Texas and the programs are amazing. Um, But I ran into a couple students specifically in Texas that just kind of made me a little bit depressed about um, kind of the extremes that that can happen in music ed where um, the performance was elevated above the kind of music competency and uh, general foundations of being a musician. And I kind of just stepped back and I said, okay, what are we doing all this for? You know, we're really doing this for people to have music in their lives the rest of their life. That's our number one. So whatever that may mean, it, it, you know, on a very minimal level, it means that they just understand the music they're going to go watch or listen to or hopefully go out and see. You know, maybe they learn to play an instrument beyond high school or stay on their own instrument and maybe play that. And we all know the very minimal percentage are the ones that are actually going into music. You know, as you get older, you know, you have more perspective and I'm kind of like, okay, how can I give back to this profession a little bit more? Because soon I won't be able to do it anymore. A little more than, you know, uh, you know, the bottom of your Stevens grip and tap height and buzz quality and things like that, which are all important. But I was kind of looking for something bigger. So um, we tried to train multi-instrumentalists here. So all the students are in choir, are in band, and are in orchestra. So right after percussion ensemble, even though I get groans and gripes, they have to go to choir. So everyone's in choir for four semesters which is awesome. I wish I would have been in choir. I mean, I had vocal class, but that was, we found every way around that to not have to sing, you know? Um, And then they also play a string instrument in orchestra. So just like I complained about having to do woodwinds and things like that, we get complaints, but um, really at the end, we're trying to build a strong uh, musical foundation you know, I have a couple friends who can pick up any instrument, they have a great ear, they can sing, and it kind of doesn't matter what's in front of them. They're a great musician, and I've always been so jealous of those people, mm-hmm. you know. And those are the kind of teachers we're trying to create. Yeah. So um, that really, I think it was the timing of where I was at, and I was like, wow, this sounds really cool. So I can take everything I know from percussion and give them that, and then they can teach me all these other things about general musicianship and Here's one case. So we were in percussion techniques, 
And I said, you know, what's really hard about unmetered rolls is you have to keep tempo inside and then play whatever tempo you can with your hands to get either the ring of the head or the ring of the bar. So that's kind of two different parts of your brain. And a lot of them raised their hand. Oh, it's like vibrato. You know, oh, it's like on my bow or it's like with my air. And I, I never knew that. You know, I never played wind. So um, they have to keep a certain speed vibrato going based on whatever the interpretation is and also keep time. So if those things come up all the time, you know, that are great. It kind of connects us to the bigger world of music, which, which I was really feeling. Like, you know, I was in Texas and my God, everyone knows. I'm a fan of the podcast. I listen to it all the time. And Texas comes up maybe every single one. You know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> and they have tremendous resources down there. You yep. know, and that's where I did most of my training. So, um, but I was just feeling kind of over percussioned, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I hate to say that on a percussion podcast, you know, but I feel like I wasn't connected to the greater music community enough for when I was wanting to give back kind of the second half of my career. So, I, I mean, I love that, that idea too, uh, because it, it's, and I know you, you're realizing this through, through some of those interactions is that it, it is it doesn't take anything away from you being a, a good musician or a good percussionist. It's only adding to it. If you can make those connections, You're, there's, there's nothing lost by doing this. What do you find the difference in like performance majors and ed majors as percussionists? Do you, what are some of the things you've run into? I don't know that, it, that the difference has been that great. I, I always feel like for my training with court McLaren, UNCG, it was very much, there was no difference in terms of expectation level. So frequently the ed people had it harder because they were like, I still expect you to be able to play everything that anyone who's doing performance is doing. And you have to do the woodwind methods, the breath methods and, uh, you know, instrumental music ed and, and all that stuff. Because you're part of a team, right? I mean, you're part right. of a percussion ensemble or anything. It, it can't be like, okay, it's all right that the music ed kids don't know their music. You know, it's... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing, I don't know if you're running into this where you are, but there's also, at least at Mizzou, there, there is a big culture of chamber music playing, I would say school wide. So a lot of them are already interact with many different instrumentalists on a, like a, a small basis, I guess. I always think of that if they're able to make music together and understand what each is doing, then again, it doesn't, it's not going to hurt them as players on their own instrument. They're just going to know more about someone else's instrument and they're going to hopefully learn from that. Yeah. And you know, when you get out of school, if you really want to play music a lot, um, that's who you're going to be playing with. I know it it takes a lot of effort to like, you know, create, I know I hear a lot of people who have duos and trios and percussion ensemble and, you know, go on the road as a solo marimbus. And, man, most of what you guys talk about is how much work it is, right, and how much effort that is. So, you know, yeah, learning not only to play with others but respecting it and and, and respecting the process, like you're saying. Like, how much can I learn from from doing that? So, yeah. absolutely. I had a great – court was a great model on this because whenever we would do um, – like, because during doctoral recitals, we would have – frequently, we, we would all – all of us would have – another performer playing with us who was not a percussionist. And I, and I would watch him talk to the trombonist and be able to completely converse with them on, on a trombone level about what they were doing. And I was just like, where is this coming from? <laughs> like, yeah. it was just, it was like, Oh, this is, this is what, this is what being a musician means. 
Yeah, the chamber thing. God, we could talk about that for hours and hours too. We just had um, a Yamaha artist and Larry Williams, who's a horn player, and he's mm-hmm. done chamber programs for Music for All a lot. And we yeah. started our first like chamber festival this year. Um, and it's no secret why percussionists are so chamber heavy. That's where we get to learn, right? Yeah. Um, and I talk. This is one thing I go over in our methods class a lot. That's unique to our instrument is our lar- large ensemble experience is just not the same at all. That's one of the biggest things I talk about in my methods classes is you've got to supply something else for these kids. But I'm now seeing it more in the band world. Like I've seen programs that uh, maybe in their fall semester will do a whole chamber program. They won't even get together. And I think and, and think about how strong those players will be all the way up from middle school to high school. If you can have little brass quintets and woodwind quintets. Now, I, I can imagine the coordination it takes as a band director, right? You're one teacher. And you're asking me to have all these different groups. And, and really, that's why the model works through the years, right? I mean, back to the, I mean, I'm in a very, there's a long music history tradition here. And there were Catholic schools. And they would, you know, bring uh, one of the companies around here um, turned into a, a rental company because they used to go around and teach all the Catholic bands. So there would, like, be a music teacher that comes in. It was kind of like a music man model, like from the musical, yeah, yeah. right? Um, but that was just the easiest way. You know, same reason why we use like the worst keyboard instrument to teach young kids, which is clock. You know, it's the easiest way. You know, it's not at all the best way. Right. Um, so the chamber thing is huge. Um, and, and, and as a new faculty member or even a new teacher, you have to explain that to people. You can't just assume that your principal is going to understand. We need three five octaves and we need a percussion ensemble. Bring them in to a band rehearsal and say, OK, we're going to run three out of the pieces and watch those kids in back. You'll see three of them sit down. You'll see one of them stand up and play a shaker, which is very cool. And it takes artistry and touch. But do you see how the experience isn't the same? You know, it's like having a computer class and like a third of the kids walk away from the computer for like 20 minutes every day. You know, so you have to teach administrators that and hopefully they value it and help to support, you know. Yeah. You had mentioned when you were talking about the school that there's a large component that is um continuing ed is that because of the music ed stuff or is that just people who want to who are maybe retired or something what's the it's both i think we have a, a kind of a name for being a great music ed uh kind of center yeah it's both a lot of them are alums you know um that are teaching or a lot of them are really current band directors that get into a situation where I'm adding a percussion class. Oh no, I added that class. What the hell do I do now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The program's called MECA, M-E-C-A. And originally when it was designed, I think in the 80s, it was supposed to be Music Education Centers of America. And what they imagined kind of before the online thing hit was different satellite locations across the whole country where they would fly Vandercook faculty or hire people. But then kind of the internet started. So now we can do, and we're almost all online now. So I teach this really cool online snare course. You know, I have 15 to 17 directors on there when you get out our pads and I have a video series they watch and like five times a semester, we're just drumming to tunes and making fun of each other's left hands and telling band jokes. And yeah, it's a good time because I learned so much from talking to other teachers. Kind of like the first thing I said here, the best thing about doing this is just knowing you're not alone. You know what I mean? Um, for out for how connected we all are, sure does feel alone sometimes, right? <laughs> so um, to be able to talk to teachers that often is is great and healthy. What is the actual 
uh, number student body? Right now, we're just under a hundred. Okay. So that's like the whole that's the whole undergraduate program. Okay. And then in the summer, we get about one fifty to one sixty, and that's changed, of course, with COVID. Um, yeah. It used to be a six week where all these directors leave their spouses and they come stay in Chicago and have a good time and hope they make it to class. And that was six weeks. Now it's three and three, three online, and they they come to campus for three weeks. But it's it's a great program for directors. They in three summers they get to earn their master's degree, and then the master's in certification and the other uh, programs add about twenty to thirty students. So it's a good number. I I love it. Uh, I had been all at state schools, <clears throat> grew up in a really big high school, and I had heard about how great the atmosphere at a small private school was. And um, now that I'm teaching it, I, I love it. You know, um, I get to know my students the same as kind of when I, I taught drum and bugle corps, where I could really get to know the students. For example, one of the one of the students practicing today, I don't think she knew I was coming up here, but she was playing a marimba solo. I said, hey, I have a podcast interview. If you want to play for me when I'm done, that's cool. Because she's up here just shedding. She's got a uh, junior recital next Saturday. So it's great. And I get to, to switch gears in the middle if they need something. As a college, we can switch gears, you know, say this class isn't working. Let's not do it anymore. And <laughs> we change our catalog. How many faculty are there? We have about 15 full-time faculty. Yeah. Which if you think about it as a music ed department, that's a lot. <laughs> right. Um, and that's what I kind of remind people. Like, don't compare it to the MU music program. You know what I mean? There's, there's all different degrees there. And so we have, you know, about three quarters of the instruments, there's full-time, maybe a little less than that, uh, about half full-time faculty. And then we have, I don't want to call them music ed faculty because we're all music ed faculty. That's what I was, I was told that many times my first couple years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Then we have a director jazz studies and a great uh, jazz outreach program on the weekends. And it's great. I, I, I'm really enjoying myself here. The other thing I wanted to add in about the, the secondaries, yeah, um, we just had our day of percussion, the Illinois Day of Percussion I hosted last Saturday, and we had our secondary percussion ensemble. Well, well let me back up for a second. So um, at Vandercook, we separate the word techniques and methods classes. Those are sometimes interchangeable, like percussion methods, percussion techniques. Yeah, yeah. Um, they all take three semesters in these instrument areas. So I see all my non-percussionists three semesters total, which is awesome. I don't know another place that does that. And I didn't think I would like it so much when I got here. I knew I wouldn't hate it, but that is one of the my most favorite part of my job. And this percussion ensemble, too, we played uh, one of Cliff Walker's pieces, Disguised, which is like his one of his biggest sellers, he told me. Um, he said it's helping pay for the yacht, which, you know. <laughs> the yacht in, in Kansas City, yes. Exactly, yes. <laughs> But they were great. They were awesome. Uh, a lot of the clinicians were like, oh, my gosh, they look like percussionists because I get a chance to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's <laughs> I know my percussion studio will hate this, but sometimes I'll text Kevin Lepper and I'll say, have you ever gotten a secondary student that looks just a little better than one of your majors? <laughs> and they'll say, absolutely. That's one of my favorite parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And again, it's going back to being just a great foundational musician. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. if you can pick up what the gist of the mechanics and the technique is, that's just the base level. You know, if you have uh, something that a mechanism to say something with, then there you go. As you know, percussionists, we get very technique obsessive. Yep. 
Yeah, I could go on and on about the college, man. I love it. Um, It's great. Right now, let's back up then. So where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in the Detroit area. Um, Plymouth Canton was an area um, between Detroit and Ann Arbor. So my family's been there for a long time. Um, And I grew up there and I was the only one out of my family that moved out of the state. So I'm the youngest of four siblings. And you can think about whatever baggage or whatever comes with that. But um, (laughs) a lot, it turns out. No, (laughs) are you do you have siblings? I'm the last of six. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Zoom Uh, fist bump. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So as I'm learning, we're still the baby of the family, even though we're. Oh, I know. Yeah. I have a sister who's three years older than me still introduces it. Here's my little brother, Jimmy. You know, like I'll take that when I'm 80. I'll be Jimmy. That's fine. fine. (laughs) But as I'm learning from my youngest daughter, like apparently we have to be heard from the, the, the volume of her voice and the mm. dinner table and things like that. So I can see that. Yeah. Especially how I'm kind of just taking over this podcast. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's great. You're the only one who left the state. Are you the only one who uh, made a career in the arts? Yes. Yeah. But, you know, neither of my parents played. Believe it or not, this is an interesting fact about the Yakis family. Um, my great-grandfather was the harpist for the Detroit Symphony. It's great. Wow. I have an old picture for him. But it was so long ago, he was the harpist and the deputy sheriff. <laughs> of course. As so, one does. That's right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got your six-shooter and you're playing, you know, a symphony and you leave the horse. And, yeah, very cool detail. But um, I actually contacted Detroit Symphony and looked in it. I got some articles with his name in it. And so my mother and my father, but, you know, we always had just music on and we'd go see music growing up. All my siblings played instrument instruments. My, my older brother played trumpet. My sister played clarinet and was in the color guard. And my sister closest to me played piano and organ. So it was just kind of always around, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what I recommend, you know, um, I, my son is playing alto sax right now, and my daughter is, you know, she's in sixth grade. She's trying out choir and vocals, and I think a couple times this year, I had walked into the kitchen from working with my son and told my wife, I think I just ruined our son for music, because it's so hard <laughs> being a parent, musician, and a teacher, because they're, you know, they're looking at dad, you know, right? And so I try, you know, but I try not to push him so hard, you know? Yeah. I, I get it. <laughs> was any of your family connected to the auto industry? Yes, of course. My father worked at Ford for 40-something years. He was an electrical engineer. And my mom never worked. Mm. So my parents are older. They're in their 90s now, still with us. And it was very much like a, a, a 50s kind of couple, like my dad with a briefcase and a hat and a pocket protector, and my mm. mom packing all the lunches and staying at home. So it was kind of that. And I was, uh, my, my parents were always older than my friend's parents, you know, mm. but it was great. It was great. You know, I learned a lot from being the last sibling, man, last out of six, you probably learned a lot too. Some serious survival skills. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and all in the good sense, but yeah. <laughs> How about yeah. you? Did you have siblings that play music? Yes. Yeah, they all did. Um, similarly, I mean, I'm the only one who went into it full time, but yeah, there was, there were everyone for at least a year played something any percussionists in there my two next oldest brothers were both percussionists so that was my wow. first 
That's some pressure yeah. or not. I don't know. How was that? It's fine. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> were you like in drum line with them and everything? Oh, no, no, no. Well, no, because they were they were a little bit older. So um, I think only one brother was in the same. We were in the same age range to be in band together. Oh, OK. Um, and, I, and at that point, he would move to trumpet. OK. Um, but but no, that was more like when when I was super young, they would take drum lessons. And that was the um, that was like my first, you know, I guess, interaction was watching them take drum lessons by from someone else. Oh, that's cool. Did they come to the house or did you go with them somewhere? To get- they came to the house. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So did you already have quite a stock of gear at the house from those two brothers? Not re- no, we were, it was very minimal. Um, it wasn't until later that we had that. I got some more stuff, but um, cool. okay. What was your introduction? My parents knew someone at, at church and he was a great drum set player. Um, and I'd go to his house, and like I said, we started on the Haskell Hard Book, and he had like a drum room, you know, and we would just, I don't know if pads, I mean, pads are such a thing now, right? I mean, there's 80 kind of pads, you can get everyone's on a pad, but mm-hmm. I feel old when we say we just played on a snare drum with the snares on, like how old school is that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we did, in one room, we played on a snare drum, and I kind of earned with my parents, I earned uh, to buy a snare drum by practicing. Then like the last five minutes of my lesson, he would, we would go into his drum room and he would just play for me. It was, it was kind of genius. He would he'd be like, okay, I'm just going to play drum set. And I would just sit there with my jaw down. He'd play Rush or something. He had mm-hmm. really old Ludwig kit with like dead ringers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They sounded great in this little room that had carpet on the walls. You know what I mean? And I was so excited. And I'm like, when can we do that? And he's like, okay, after you finish Downfall of Paris or something, you know? Um, and it was awesome. It was great. I, I tell the story all the time. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, being the youngest of six, if you'd gotten in as much trouble as I did. And I don't know whether this is an attention-seeking thing for me, but um, there, was a, there was a fair amount of troublemaking by me with my teachers and everything. So my parents were going on a cruise when I was in sixth grade, and they said, if you don't get in any trouble, if we don't get, I don't even know how they would know, like a, a telegram or something on the water. Sure. If you don't get in any trouble, when we come back, we got a surprise for you. So I'm like, oh, interesting. This might be worth, you know, some good behavior. So I came back and it was a drum set. So it was awesome. They had, they had hit it at some of their friend's house. And I recently caught up with their friends. And they remember when there was the old Pearl Export sitting at their house. I don't know what would happen if I would have gotten in trouble and take it back or what. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've just been gifted a new drum set. Thank you. Yeah. I wasn't going to call their bluff, though. I, uh, you know, I behaved myself. <laughs> Was stuff like Rush, uh, some of the music you were playing on the drum set when you first got it? Yeah. I mean, growing up in Detroit, there's a lot of classic rock and, yeah. you know, you kind of assume that. And a lot of jazz, too. So in middle school... Um, I was kind of simultaneously taking with someone downtown Detroit. Uh, I guess it would have been early high school who was more of a jazz player. And then mm-hmm. uh, my first kind of drumline instructor, um, Jerry Hotchkin, who uh, was in the original 27th Lancers line with Charlie Poole. So he was um, a, dr- a drumline instructor. So that was my next kind of level, you know, doing that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I would go downstairs and play to any recordings I could. You know, if it was jazz, but definitely like any other drummer, it was some of that prog rock that came out in the late 70s, early 80s. 
And it's just like everything else. That's high percussion, you know, high frequency per second <laughs> of drum music. So you're automatically drawn to it. Who else aside from Rush were you playing? Oh, I would, you know, I would like to play it all the classic rock stuff on the, the radio too. So Led Zeppelin, like huge. Like mm-hmm. I, I think I discovered there was something different about the sound of Bonham very early, you know. Then well, the first friend, record, Good Times, Bad Times, has the like the triplet, sixteen no triplet oh, things yeah. where you're like, yeah, I think he's doing that on a Slingerland leather strap. And oh it's yeah, like, strap drive. Yeah, it's like yeah. how? Like it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. like on a thirty eight inch bass drum or whatever. Yeah. It was. <laughs> no, it was awesome. Yeah. Um, and I really, you know, I've always drawn, uh, been drawn to groups that were kind of eclectic that way, that they would have some blues, they would have some rock, they would have a ballad. Yeah. Um, Ray Charles is a, I'm a huge Ray Charles fan because he did like country music. And mm-hmm. I actually saw uh, Ray Charles in Columbia when he was still living at the hall there. It was awesome. Really? Yeah, that had to have been, oh God, Troy would probably be able to tell you I went with him. <laughs> 2000 something, you know, okay. it was a couple years before he passed away. But artists like that, you know, um, when the Dave Matthews band came out, I was a huge fan of them because all their music, some people say their music sounds the same, but it it really doesn't. If you listen to it a lot, you know, tons of different styles in there. Well, Carter's just so fluid and such a great player. Yeah. Like, I I just, I'm always, every time I listen, I'm just like, I'm just really impressed because every time you watch him, you also realize he's doing some singing and it just, it's easy. Like everything he's doing is just easy. And all that funk influence and the fact that he's playing open-handed and left-handed and, and yeah, you know, when I used to play, it was all, it was all kind of by ear. So um, when transcriptions came out of some of that rush stuff, I'm like, Oh, okay. I wonder if that's right. I did it like this, you know, (laughs) it's kind of funny, but I remember very specifically setting up my roto toms and tuning them way down. I don't know if you ever tried that, but way down. Then you screw them just to where they get, tight so they have like an electronic drum sound oh. and I had that, that whole setup in my basement you know what i mean nice. pretty much like every other kid that generation you know it was great yeah, the climb over stuff to get it yes. like kind of like land head first yeah. into the thing to... and my poor siblings my god i don't know how they put up with it my brother still says and he doesn't know that much about percussion he's like i remember when you trying out for that marching group and you had that field snare because it was like 92 and i had a kevlar drum and i'd play on it in our basement <laughs> and we had we had like the fake 70s paneling and right behind yeah. the paneling was cement uh-huh. um and I, I tell my students this all the time i'd wear a baseball hat and then one of those little credit card metronomes which is probably why my ear was is not good and i put it right here and i would just i was trying not to get cut from madison so i was drumming yeah, yeah. and i remember at the bottom of our stairs in the basement there was a light that you could flicker from the top of the stairs. And that was the signal that I had a phone call or it was time for dinner. Nice. <laughs> so nice. they would just flick the light or my, my sister Mary would just scream at the top of her lungs. <laughs> so I don't know how they put up with it. Thank you siblings for that. <laughs> <laughs> Cause you said it sounds like your high school marching band was uh, like a big, that was a big deal aside yeah, from they were, you even they, going they, into DCI stuff. Yeah, it was a big high school program. We had a great fife and drum corps in Plymouth, too. Mm. And the guy who taught me was teaching the high school drum line, and he was a part of the fife and drum corps. Um, and I had my best friend, Tim Sherman, who's still my best friend, was in the fife and drum corps and in drum line. And I get connected to all that. And, of course, I started watching videos and listening to recordings. And 
oh man, my sophomore, junior year of high school, it was every day after school with a bowl of cereal and a VHS of finals. You know, it's where it's like you need the tracking now to during the drum solos, you would have to adjust the tracking. Yeah. Um, I tell this to everyone. I think I think 89 was in Arrowhead. I think it was in Kansas. I think that's right. Um, I know Is that when Santa Clara won. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's that's where that, that's the one year Julia Gaines did it was that. Yes, year. that's right. I know for a fact that a bug crawls across the white stripe during the Blue Devils drum solo in the front of the screen. That's how many times I've watched it. So I'm like, watch this bug come across right here. And everyone can check me on that. It was either 89 or 90, but I think it was 89. So there was a lot of that, you know. Um, My father liked classical music and my mom liked kind of jazz and show tunes. Mm -hmm. Um, So between that and drum corps, that was kind of my first introduction to all that kind of music you know, which was cool. Then I was, yeah, part of that great band program. We went to BOA and we won nationals my final year. So that was, that was cool. You know, at that time, what was, if you remember, what was the kind of the size of the percussion section? Oh, it was big. It was a big band. I went to uh, Plymouth Canton Educational Park, they call it, is two high schools put together. Now it was, now it's three high schools. I guess they always figured they should have one band program. So we, it was always really populated with a lot of kids and it was a big band. We're talking about 180 kids, you mm-hmm. know, and eight or nine snares and four or five quads, five bass drums. And the pit was what it was in, you know, late eighties, early nineties, you know, still wheeling uh, actual concert instruments out there, you know, that. Yeah. Kind of. but I auditioned really hard my freshman year for snare drum and I made the baseline, but the only one open was four and I was tiny and I got cut to the cymbal line. I went home and I cried so hard, <laughs> but because uh, I don't know if the both bottom bass drums, but one of our bottom bass drums at Plymouth that time was a chrome drum. Like it was a metal drum. Oh, good Lord. So I can't, I got to imagine that guy's rocking a walker at this point or, or something, you know, there's got to be some kind of damage. Yeah. So I'm kind of glad they didn't put me on the baseline then. And then I was on snare my last uh, three years there. So yeah, shout out to Jerry Hodgkin and uh, Chris Johnson. Uh, he was, there's some really old drum corps references, but um, he had a couple brothers, Ralph Johnson and Chris Johnson. They were in the guardsmen with Campbell uh, had some drum corps roots in the community. That was, that was pretty cool. Well, so how does the DCI portion start then? One of my best friends, Chris Romanowski, who I was in the drum line with, kind of watching the videos and everything. And I went to Eastern Michigan for a couple of years. Ypsilanti's like 20 minutes from Plymouth Canton. Mm-hmm. I actually started as a, a criminal justice major, <laughs> believe it or not, for all the trouble I got into. Maybe it's because yeah. I knew police stations really well. Oh, know. nice. <laughs> but, you know, like anyone else, I, I, I kept gravitating back to the music building, right? right? I'm, maybe I'll join percussion ensemble. Maybe I'll take lessons. Let's try out this theory class. And it's like, why don't you just become a music major? <laughs> You know, so that's what happened. Um, and then I realized uh, I wanted to try for drum corps and mm-hmm. I auditioned for the Blue Coats and I was kind of making it for a while. Oh, no, before that, I auditioned. This is a funny story. So for the Cavaliers, Chris uh, Romanowski and I drove to the Cavaliers mm-hmm. and we got cut all the way down to the cymbal line. And they said, Steve Brubaker is going to come in and talk about how the cymbal and the color guard are going to kind of join and you're going to be in the color guard and everything. And we just rolled up our 
sleeping bags and drove back to Michigan because I don't know if you, if you know Chris and I, but we are not that nimble and flexible. There's no way we could be in a color guard. Touching our knees might be it, you know, even touching our toes. But then I went to some blue coats camps and enjoyed it and kind of decided uh, to play baseball my final, final year because I played baseball all the way since I was younger. Oh, okay. So, um, I played my last year of high school ball and uh, took this job as a pool attendant that summer. It was the mm-hmm. best job I ever had. So um, I didn't have to, I wasn't a lifeguard. So no. I was just there. So if someone was drowning, I really didn't have to save them, I guess. Sure. Um, but so I just had a drum pad and I'd sit there next to the pool for eight hours a day. It was the best job I ever had. So I auditioned for scouts after that. And that's where I met some people for uh, UNT, you know, after I made the scouts in 1992. When you did that, were you marching snare? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I I barely made it in, I think, but I think mm. they realized because I was working my tail off, you know, in my basement with a metronome, credit card metronome in my ear, mm-hmm. playing like an hour and a half to two hours a day. And I would come back and hopefully I looked a little better and a little better and didn't get cut. And I hung. So it was great. Who was uh, directing the line at that point? Chris Thompson. Um, and then Jeff Moore was that was his second year on staff. Mm-hmm. So Chris Thompson was kind of giving Jeff some more responsibility, some writing responsibility, and Chris would be gone for a lot of the tour. So that's when I first met Jeff, and um, eventually he became a, a huge mentor. So, who else was part of those lines when you were there? Oh, a, a lot of people. I, you know, two of my best friends still. Um, a guy named Dan Niemeyer, who's in Texas, um, who teaches. He's got a great high school gig down there. Still a really good friend of mine. And another friend of mine, Arjuna Contreras, who is a drum set player now, um, shout out to him. He's playing with J.D. McPherson, opening up for Allison Krauss and Robert Plant. So nice. um, very cool. He said that they, they have to call him Bob. They have to call Robert Plant Bob. I'm like, there's no way I could call Robert Plant Bob. That's yeah. so weird. Um, anyways, and I have a lot of friends in Madison I still connect with. Uh, one of my friends, Eric Jansen, went to University of Michigan, so he would kind of come over for dinner at Easter to my house. And um, Jeff Spanos is a good friend of mine. He was working at Yamaha for a long time. So a ton of people I still communicate with. It was a huge part of my life. Do you have a favorite show that you marched? They were all great, but I, I, I marched four years, 92, 93, 94, 95, and probably the 95 show. And, and that's, that's partly kind of a personal reason, too, because I had a lot of things figured out, you know, and it was just less stressful. I knew what was happening in the summer. I knew what I had to do. I could just kind of let it ride and enjoy it, you know, rather than my first summer where everything was brand new. Probably my last summer. What was the show? That was called, it was the Spanish thing. It was, uh, Spanish thing. yeah, does that narrow it down for scouts? Uh, <laughs> Sadly, it might narrow it down if you're, if you're just like, you, you, you see all the things that say Latin and you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I know what they mean. <laughs> yeah. So it was a lot of Latin stuff. We played a tune called Malaga at the end, which they, uh, ended up doing again in 96 and we, mm. oh, no, they didn't do that. Nice. We did it in 94. Then it was our closer in 95. So yeah, nice. it was great. It, it fit the style of that horn line really well. Backtrack a sec, because you said you played baseball. What was your position? Second base. Oh. Uh, Love the middle infield. I mean, I was a tiny kid. Like, uh, in high school, I had to wear the number one because I'm the only one that could fit into that jersey. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh, Alan Trammell for the Detroit Tigers was, like, one of my favorite 
players yeah. ever. And I met him once and I was super pumped up. And um, I think because I was small, uh, the kids started getting bigger than me and I was a shortstop growing up, but um, the, my arm wasn't what some kids were, but I could still have the high uh, hand eye coordination, you know? Yeah. Um, so I love the middle infield, all that action in there. And, uh, and I still love it to this day. I mean, as much as I can throw a ball 15 minutes before I, my sure. arm, but yeah, huge baseball fan. The good news was you were growing up. The Tigers were good. Oh yeah. Until they were abjectly horrible for like 40 years, <laughs> 30 years or whatever yeah. it was. But are you, are you a Royals or cards? No, I grew up in New York. I'm a Yankees fan. Oh, so. That's right. You're Long Island. Long Island. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So do you know so. Pete DeSalvo? You know, Pete, right? He, I was on the, I Ed know the name. I don't know if I, if I know him, know him. He was the head of the Ed committee for a long time. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. And I have to give a shout out to my buddy, Steve Lundeen out in DeKalb. He was, he, <laughs> he's now the band director at DeKalb high school, like right next to NIU. Mm -hmm. And God, he was so New York when he showed up to the NIU studio. I loved it. I remember him yelling at some undergrad, chasing him around the percussion room. It was awesome. <laughs> so maybe he's mellowed a little bit being out in all that corn, but, uh, <laughs> uh -huh. yeah so are you a rangers fan or islanders you got to be islanders fan right? islanders yankees jets oh yeah we're right across from guaranteed right field here at vandercook nice like, when my son and i come i just park at my office and we walk over there so, sweet it's great yeah it's awesome yeah i went to the 84 world series i was in i don't want to date myself too much i was in elementary school my dad got tickets to two of the games that's so, great when they won, it was a little scary because Detroit, Detroit, and there were yeah. cars burning, and but they were ripping up the grass, and yeah. I was in the outfield, and I climbed the fence, and I signaled to some guy to throw me some grass, and I kind of like put it on the side of our house and like staked it off and watered it and oh. my tiger turf for a while. It was cool. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was scary. I was, you know, in uh, late elementary school with my dad and there's all these crowds and who knows, I could just get sucked up in the crowd. And, mm -hmm. you know. but it was great. I'll never forget it. That's back when parents were just like, yeah, whatever, go down and get a piece of grass. You're good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, that's when they allowed fans to even go on the field. Well, yeah. allowed the fans just kind of overtook the security. Yeah. Those. It would have been worse. I think if they tried to stop it, honestly, and yes. that was their mindset. You know, yeah. there's a there's hilarious footage. I think it's the 77 World Series when the Yankees beat the Dodgers. It's one of Reggie Jackson has the three home runs. They, they oh, yeah. Career. yeah. There's hilarious footage with like, I want to say maybe an, an out, maybe two outs left in the ninth inning. Like the whole crowd is sitting on the on the basically the back wall oh, nice. of the outfield just like <laughs> like that's how ready to run the field they are yeah. it's, it's 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 like one of those you're like there's no way you, that would ever happen now yeah <laughs> you said you get connected to that that's i assume through the scouts it sounds like that's how you know about north texas yeah, Jeff Moore was an alum, and my friend Dan Niemeyer had been going down there, and mm -hmm. Arjuna Contreras, those guys, they were already down there for a year. Mm -hmm. And they were giving away scholarships for a drumline. I'm like, wow, a drumline scholarship? Like, I have to be part of the marching band? They're like, well, not necessarily. It's a competitive drumline, and it's kind of this unique thing. You will mm -hmm. have to do a little bit of marching band, but it's mostly for this drumline program. So yeah. I auditioned for it, and I got it, and loaded up the U-Haul and pulled in in a cowboy hat, <laughs> just like a, a Yankee would thinking he's part of the South, you know, and course, yeah. uh, 
yeah, went down there. It must be something about the youngest. I don't know. I was just always a little more adventurous about getting out of my hometown, I think, than my siblings. You know, I've traveled a lot around the, the, the world doing world music stuff. And it's just so healthy to travel. You know, yeah. it, gives you, it gives you so much perspective. Even going from Detroit to Dallas, you know. Um, my sister would call down there and go, do you guys have you guys have Walmarts down there? I don't know. What should I bring? I'm like, it's not like a a little island in the Pacific. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's Dallas, Texas. You're fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was great. It was super healthy. And, you know, when I was down in DFW, I would try to get students to just go out of the area a little bit. You know, it's hard because you have all these awesome programs and they're like, I think I'm going to go to TCU. I think I'm going to go to North Texas. I think I'm going to go to, you know, UT Arlington, whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, that's great, but there are there are great schools elsewhere. You should just check out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just try to step out of the county, and you're going to learn a lot about yourself and other people when you travel. You know. Shoot, OU is not that far away. Yeah, it's you not. Know, for example. Yeah, you can I'm still bring your laundry home. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who's is it? Shatroma when you're there. Yeah, Shatroma and Ron Fink. Paul was doing the drumline. Jeff Moore and Paul got there kind of the same time. And then Paul took the drum line over 89, 90, 91. So it's all kind of blurry. They had a lot of great grad assistants. And there was mm-hmm. such this drum corps connection down there. You know, um, I tell, I forgot where I was. Well, I, I don't know, judging a drum line thing. We were talking about kind of teaching by sound, right? And like timekeeping and by sound quality. If you look at the snare lines that were in, there were like five or six drum cores. And we played really clean <laughs> and we looked almost completely different, you know? So I was kind of refreshed when drum corps started to go to more of kind of a natural approach with their hands and their arms and their, I see some blood flowing now in the marching snare lines and everything, you know, it, it's great. I think it's because we have more uh, well-rounded percussionists and music educators running it, which not saying, I'm not trying to, to bad mouth old school rudimentalists. They're amazing. But yeah, it was kind of amazing what we could do in that drum line with people from different parts of the country with not a whole lot of rehearsal. And Paul was so great at just teaching how to drum and be a musician that I remember asking people like we we would be outside of this, uh, you know, where we kept our drums for and, and pacing was a big deal back then. Right. That was like pre WGI. That was like kind of the thing. Mm-hmm. And we'd be drumming and we'd be drumming and Paul would come up with some new wrist twister that he saw somewhere. And he'd just come down from his office, and say, let's try this sticking. And do, we'd end up doing it for two hours and working out this little flam sticking. And uh, that would be September. And I'm like, Hey, we're going to get any music, you know, Dan, you know, Dan was my buddy. So I'm Dan, well, how's this thing work? You know, it's like, oh, we'll be good. Just take it easy. You know, and then we drum some more stuff and Paul would come back and, hey, let's try this. Let's do this backwards. Or, you know, and there's, you know, we're like, you know, beginning of October. And I'm like, don't we have a gig coming up? You know, <laughs> uh-huh. and then, you know, he would pass out the music and we would pretty much read it down clean. You know, it was like, oh, OK. So a great foundation and, you know, having a good ear and timekeeping and sound quality does make a difference. You know, and when I see his lines now, like, I, you know, um, when I was uh, learning from Paul, he was like at Velvet Nights, you know, and they had a great drum line. Um, but even here in the Santa Clara lines, when they first started getting really good and his regiment lines, that was the difference for me, you know, was really the sound quality and the timing and the musicianship that they had. You know, not to say that anyone else said there's tons of great lines out there, but um, because I've experienced his teaching, I know that that's what he instills. What was the tell me a little bit more about the concert portion of your time there? I started out by taking with grad assistants, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? 
but then yeah. I uh, worked my, you know, I took with uh, Ron Fink. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when she Wu showed up as a grad assistant, um, mm-hmm. I took with her, which was like life changing, right? <laughs> um, she was in the drum line with us. So she yeah. played in the front ensemble and um, she is, uh, I, I think someone else, I, someone was on your podcast and said, well, she's a force of nature and it's exactly like that. You know what I mean? She was like that then. I see. Yes. Yes. Just like coming in as a grad student, you know? Yeah. Um, Dr. Stroma went on sabbatical and Stevens ended up doing his summer symposium stretched over the whole spring. Oh, okay. He would come in on a Friday night and kind of release us from that world mid Sunday <laughs> okay. and your brain would just be mush. Cause you would just start with physics and all this. And that's when I was taking with she and, uh, I know the studio is still big, but I think when I was there, it was maybe the biggest, like 120 or 130 percussionists. So the departmental recital was a really stressful thing. And when I was a freshman, I think I was playing the Bach A minor presto. Mm -hmm. And I came into my lesson and she was like, hey, I signed you up for departmental Friday. You're playing. And I just, you know, let me go change my pants. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I watched that. Do you mind if I cry? right now because I will (laughs) but it was great you know I get a lot of uh, I had a lot of teachers like that being in drum corps that you know you don't know your limits until you're you're kind of pushed that way you know um and I remember watching the video of that and there was like it was I didn't break which was amazing because there are there's the same kind of rhythm through that thing right (laughs) um but it was way too fast and there was like no expression or anything but I got you know (laughs) so having that experience with her and Steven's um, and then later getting to take with Ed Smith on vibes yeah. blew my mind. I, I did a couple little vibe juries where I did transcription and he, and in the room that you would take with him, there would be a marimba. So you'd be like back to back. So he'd yeah, be yeah. on marimba comping and you'd be on vibes playing your jury. And a couple of times I just, I just stopped and listened to his comping because it was way cooler than what I was playing. <laughs> He's like, what's going on? I'm like, I just want to listen to you for a little bit. This is lame what I'm doing. <laughs> that guy's a genius. So it, it was great. You know, if you're talking about like a pendulum swing. Right. I, I was in, there are lots of programs like this now with world music and NIU is one of them that I went to. And I know Indiana, but you're in like this percussion wonderland, right? You're like, right. oh my God, there's 12 ensembles I can sign up for. And there's a yeah. drum line. I can be in Brazilian, Afro-Cuban. You're spending all your time on that. You know, once I got out, that was great. And I started sharing it. But um, once you become older and older, you realize you have to connect, you have to get out of your percussion bubble a little bit. And I'm, I'm learning that. I'm still learning that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was great. It was great for me. It led me to a lot of, uh, you know, I was a big part of the steel band there. And then when I got to NIU, it was, you know, it was totally on with the steel band thing. So. Well, how, how do you get to N- NIU? I was teaching Madison at the time and mm-hmm. I was finally getting ready to graduate with my undergrad. And, um, I was looking around, you know, at places and I looked into it and I said, man, this looks like, you know, it has everything North Texas has, but like a manageable studio, <laughs> you know, where I could actually add, know everyone's name. Yeah. Um, and I had a good friend who's still one of my best friends, Doug Brott, who was a student there and he was drumming in the jazz band and he got two degrees there and I went to visit and just loved it. Um, Rich Holly and Robert Chapel. I don't know if you know those guys, just the, the nicest guys um, in the world. And they were in that studio where it was a super tight community and tons of fun. So I just hit it off there. It was great. I was only there for two years. I was the grad assistant, but those were two of the most productive years of my schooling. 
you know. Yeah. Where undergrad, you're just you're just trying to hang on, and you realize how big the world is, and you know you know none of it. Yeah. You know, in grad school, it's still that way, but maybe you pick a chunk of the pie to get a little better at. <laughs> right. So it was cool. I got to do all the same things I did at North Texas, and then they had this amazing steel band program where I went to uh, Trinidad and Korea with them. We went mm. to this World Steel Band Festival that was uh, Cliff Alexis was writing tunes for us, and it was great experience. And then when we went to Seoul, South Korea, it was during the World Cup, and mm-hmm. they had this drum festival. It was kind of it wasn't we weren't really part of the World Cup, but they were trying to get events to like fill the city with all yeah. this art and everything else. So. This was the this was such a cool experience. We stayed at this hotel with all these other drum groups. So the big performance was we were on the stage with like 12 different drum groups from around the world. Yeah. You had groups from Turkey that was like old Janissary drums and things like that. And then you had this section of the stage and it was just so cool. And believe I don't know why they didn't get someone from Trinidad, but we got in there and <laughs> represented steel drum from America. That's very America, I know, but yeah. um, <laughs> it was great. It was great. And uh, we stayed in the hotel with all those musicians. So uh, there was a group from Senegal, like a djembe ensemble, and you could hear their room going crazy during the World Cup. And it was it was great. Those two years were awesome. And I got to teach all the methods classes and learn so much. Um, Orlando Coto was there. Oh, nice. Uh, and uh, I learned uh, I continued some of that Latin stuff that I was doing at North Texas. Mm-hmm. And Rich and Robert were so cool. They would let you do anything kind of wanted you know i mean mm-hmm. teach this ensemble teach the the techniques class yeah and and i kind of didn't do any of the marching stuff there too i made it a habit of um as i grew older the drum corps thing was kind of my only marching outlet because there was so much more out there i wanted yeah. to kind of pigeonhole myself mm-hmm. there's a couple jobs i applied to where i didn't put any of my marching experience on there just to see what would happen you know what i mean yeah and i, and I still got the job so i was like okay i must be doing something right you know, um, so I guess that's a lie of omission, right? If I didn't put something on a resume. Absolutely. Well, I mean, on a resume, they don't, you can remove as much as you want. Like yeah, <laughs> just, you just can't put things on there that you didn't do. That's, yeah, that's, that's true. the problem. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, when you get there, I know this is kind of, I, this, I feel like this would be a weird question to ask, but I'm, I'm curious, like, okay, so they kind of let you do what you wanted to do. You had had this experience with at North Texas, which is very specific, but it's also like extremely expansive. So what kinds of things when you get to Northern Illinois is like, I don't know if you would consider them holes. Is it the world like you got to do a lot more world percussion? Is that kind of like the thing that drives you more than anything or is it other stuff? Yeah, I think being able to teach them, I really had to know what I was talking about, you know, yeah. it, just for the fact that I was part of, say, Brazilian ensemble. That means I might have learned my part, one instrument at North right. Texas, you know what I mean? Uh, and I remember Robert let me do like a Brazilian thing at one of the concerts. So I had to like practice all the parts and look into an arrangement and do that. So it was it was really the teaching thing. And it was kind of what I said, you know, you you realize there's so much out there. Um, uh, another influential teacher named Jeff Stitely, who's a Chicago area drummer. I finally got to like since middle school and high school, I hadn't done a lot of drum set. I finally got to study some drum set with him and NIU has a terrific jazz program. So that was great. I got to be in like a a big band there. I tell my percussion majors, undergrad is we stuff all this information in your head and it's just sitting there and you don't get to do anything with it. 
And it especially comes up when you're, your first teaching gig is the first thing you want to do is open the gates and just let it all out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what, how I was at NIU. I had like experienced all this stuff, just the tip of the iceberg. Right. And then I, I got to do some more of it. If it was teaching or um, I had never, I don't think I had ever, ever done excerpts before until I got to uh, NIU. I did yeah. a couple of those because it's just back then North Texas didn't have a huge tradition of uh, like, you know, putting out orchestral percussionists. You had kind of had to do it on your own or we'd get some there because they were interested in the other things. But man, did it lead me to some interest in world music and and obviously being a part of that that drumline program. By the time I left uh, North Texas, I felt like the drumline stuff was kind of on autopilot. Not that I couldn't learn anything. That's not what I mean at all. But sure. it's like I can I can go teach and I can be a part of this. And pretty soon it's going to maybe fizzle out. But then I got into some more writing, like writing high school books and writing for Madison and things like that. So I think it's just that to answer your question. You know, for our instrument family, I still have this problem. You know what I mean? It's like, man, I haven't done this in a while. I'm going to do this. And you just feel it's very much a spinning plates kind of percussion family. Right. Like, no, yeah, it's hard to stay focused you know, or, you know, now fully that you are just leaving things out. Yeah. I I think that's a different, like, it's, it's different when you're like, if you're fully in one world and you could just feel like, I, you know, this is great. And then like, if something you discover something, you're like, Oh, this is cool thing. And then once you've done that enough, you're like, I used to do that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I mean, sometimes I know you ask about books. Um, I'm sure. I'm I'm the king of starting books and then not finishing them, but I am finishing this one. Uh, it's called Midlife by Kirian Setia. He's a, a philosophy professor at MIT, okay. and um, it does. It's kind of it's very humorous and it's a great read. So they talk about like the history of the midlife crisis and you know mm. convertibles and sweaters around your neck and that whole side of it, right? Nice. Um, yeah. But there's a whole chapter on like you know the the fear of missing out syndrome. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And he puts such a healthy spin on it. It's like, it's a privilege to be able to have all these opportunities at your feet and be able to kind of not be able to do them. So when I read that, it kind of refreshed me a little bit, you know, that I'm in a position where I could study any of these things and could learn all these pieces. And not everyone has that. So it was a much healthier outlook for me, you know, really influential book. So that sounds great. Makes me feel old, but <laughs> you know, once you hit a certain age, like I said, when I was in Texas, you start seeing the end and you want to make sure you're contributing as much as you can to sure. the field. Um, and I think it's natural to get a little less selfish, you know, um, and you want to give back. And uh, that was another draw to this college where I have an exponential effect because all I do is teach teachers and they teach more people and they teach more people. So that's, that was a big draw for me. Do you head right from there back to North Texas or do you do something else? Um, I got my master's and I know I, at this point, I kind of knew I didn't want to teach in public schools. So um, Jeff Moore asked me to be a sabbatical replacement at UCF. Mm-hmm. So when I was there, um, Thad, who was our next PAS president and Omar Carmenade, all the, they were all undergrads. Mm. So it was a blast. Those guys were great. Um, and they knew I was kind of the young guy because so it was kind of like having a babysitter. They could get away with something. <laughs> And sure. I kind of knew them. Um, and I always joke to Jeff about it. I think I, I, he just got me so he knew he could keep his office the same and he didn't have to mess with anything. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but that was great. I did that for a year and I got done with that. And I'm like, okay, now what? And I had kind of reconnected with my now wife who lived in Minneapolis. Mm. So 
I packed up my Ranger, which I could move in two hours back then. I had a futon, um, I think a new G Mac or whatever it was called back then. Yeah. And like five boxes of old modern drummers or something. Sure. Packed it all up, went to Minneapolis and taught the steel band at the U with Fernando Mesa up there. Yeah. Taught at some high schools, just taught, you know, just hung out for a year. And then my friend uh, Jeff Osdemore, mm-hmm. um, who was, we lived together in a house with some of those other guys down in, in uh, Denton. Yeah. He was leaving the job at UT Arlington. Um, I can't remember where he was going. Oh, he was taking a high school gig. Mm. They pay way more yeah. <laughs> down there. It was always a question of my my wife had for me. So how long are we going to try out this college thing? You got a year for me? <laughs> so I wanted to try it out. So she was cool enough to move down there like the year after we got married. That school is one of the only with a marching band with no football team. So uh, it's like that. I think Riverside Community College might, right? Does anyone else do you know of? I don't know. Uh, but it was so cool because um, – Obviously, I was a huge, like, Michigan football fan. So if it was, like, one of those gigs where I could actually watch decent football, no offense, North Texas, um, <laughs> I would take a gig like that. But I w- really didn't want to, like, go be just a, a marching band drumline person. Yeah. Um, and the way we could run that band program is kind of like a mini drum corps where we didn't have to have a show ready by Labor Day. You know, mm-hmm. we did, like, seven exhibitions. And the first one was, like, mid-September, late September. You know, so I could spend like the band camp that we had in the first couple months, like teaching them how to drum. And yeah. We do one show. It was great. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the reason I went down there. Another reason was to get uh, experience teaching. And Dr. Michael Varner, who was down there since like 81, was awesome. Huge mentor to me. Again, he let me do anything. I don't know what it is. Maybe if I just I'm nice to people, they just trust me. I don't know why they trust me, but they do. And I was able to do. That that was another. That was the second most, if not the top, more pro, most productive time. Um, it was just me, my wife, and our dog, and I could put recitals together, practice for six hours, write drumline books, you know, just be really productive there. So I, I, I I'm very grateful to to Mike Varner for everything he did for me, all the opportunities I got down there. Again, anything I wanted to do, I could do. Tell me the timeline here. So when when how long is the Sabbatical replacement is is just a one semester. Year. One year. One year. Okay. Yep. And then how long were you in Minneapolis? One year. Okay. Uh, and then year, you had to. Year. Yeah. And how long were you at UT Arlington? Eleven years. They were talking about opening another ten-year track, and then I became full-time instructor, which was mm-hmm. a minimal pay raise, enough to kind of live slightly above the poverty line, you know, sure. um, you, you know, the hang with college, you know, you, if you, if you want to hang in there, you got to supplement your income some way. So I was writing drumline books, teaching at a couple high schools, filling Tuesday and Thursday afternoons with 12 high school kids. So I drive to a couple, you know, it was a busy time. Um, sure. and then I kind of realized I want to, you know, pursue my doctorate, you know, after some years. So is that just because you're like, I, I actually, this is actually what I want to do. Yes. Yeah. I had uh, such a good time teaching that level and having that kind of freedom, you Mm -hmm. know, before family and everything else. It was, it was, I could, I could actually learn a lot from my students, you know what I mean? At that age. And it's like a little lab for me as a player and a teacher. And it's just, 
it sounds a little selfish in that way, but teaching this age, you can continuously keep growing as a musician. You know, you teach yeah. college kids, you know, they can mm-hmm. teach as much to you to, as you to them. So oh, yeah. um, I just got addicted to it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and said, okay, I think if, you know, um, I really want to do this, I have to get a doctorate. And then when I started my doctorate, man, it was like being back in school again after being out for like eight year it wasn't quite eight years i guess it was more like six years five years i i don't know it runs together when you get old being at a place like that with dma students where everyone was super engaged and you're in these small little seminar classes i remember i took a whole class on stravinsky one semester it was just amazing um Mm -hmm. i minored in ethno with dr stephen friedson and i got to go to ghana where he like owned land and we oh, wow. stayed there for three weeks. And it, it wasn't like we were in a, a hotel and took a bus out to the bush. It was like we were in it, like so hmm. many great stories. And I went back to North Texas uh, for a lot of reasons. I knew it was a great school and it was close. My wife and I look back at that time wondering how the hell we did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, when I was doing my residency, it was nine months. I was a full-time student. Yep. I was a full-time employee. And we decided to have our first child. Sure. Sounds great. Let's add that in. Yeah. Easy peasy. <laughs> it was great. And when I came back, that was Mark Ford's uh, first year. I'm trying to remember how I think Christine had already been there and Paul was still there. So it was great. And Ed Smith was still there. And you don't have a, I guess, because you're working full time. So you don't have an assistantship then, right? No, I did not. Yeah. And also I didn't, they have enough majors that they didn't require all the DMAs to be in the large ensembles, you sure. know I mean? which I regret. I, I wanted to be in Corporon's wind ensemble. Sure. I just couldn't make it work with my teaching schedule. I was still, I still had a ton of students and percussion ensemble of my own back in Arlington. So, right. And then homework being like 40, whatever, like getting homework. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Go feed the baby. No, I got homework. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a thing, you know, it's, it's cool though. I mean, I think I pride myself on being a very open learner, like any age, anything, anytime kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I think you had said that you, when you start at Vandercook, you're not done. Is that right? No, no. Okay. I had everything, but my dissertation, I was ABD. So sure. And then just like I said before, everyone's like, don't take a job until you're done. And then, right. of course, a while till I finished my uh, my dissertation and my lecture recital. The hard thing with, I don't know if they've changed this, but you had to have continuous enrollment. Mm-hmm. So when I was at UTA teaching, I was, quote, enrolled working on my dissertation with Dean that whole time, which yeah. I was. I was taking lessons for all my recitals, and it was hugely influential. Um, it's just that final project was not going anywhere, mm. you know. Um, I had two or three ideas and I was making a bigger deal out of it than, you know, Mike sure. Barner would say, what part of the word finish don't you understand? <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's really like anything else. You just got to dive in and then you find inspiration. And What was your diss on? When I was studying with Dean, he introduced me to a bunch of different kinds of music. And I had played uh, Concerto Piccolino by Milton Babbitt, the Babbitt vibe thing. Oh, I, I heard of it. I don't think I've ever heard it. You know, I always tell people I learned this from actually from Dr. Fritz. And there was a, a, a guy uh, called Mantle Hood who was an ethnomusicologist. And uh-huh. his theory was called bimusicality. So 
this was like the 50s and 60s when you had all these early ethno people going out with notebooks and just taking notes and being kind of an other and outside. And his theory was play the music to know them, get in there, grab a drum and play it. It was a very new idea. So I thought about that, um, about all the different kinds of percussion I hadn't done. So sure. even when I started my DMA, I had done excerpts, but I'd never really done them until I yeah. studied with Dean. And I hadn't really done contemporary music, you know, and people that don't play contemporary music or always have this kind of, you know, skepticism. Are they really, yeah, they really doing that? Are they really playing that? Did they really learn it? And I was kind of yeah. in that same boat, you know. So I'm like, let's tackle this. I, I found that solo and Dean's like, that's a great idea. I think that would be great. And I loved it. I don't know why I loved it. It's not like I'm a... <laughs> that that kind of player i have very little experience in that area but i absolutely loved it you know and part of it is because all that stuff if it's just picking away at all this world music or a little drum line thing it just adds into this big experiential ball that we have you know what i mean so having to dive into a babbitt vibraphone solo and layers of serialism and trying to analyze it yeah. um it was great <laughs> it was great um I, I connected with this guy, Dr. Andrew Mead, was who was like the Babbitt scholar of the world, and we both couldn't come up with the analysis of it. <laughs> so I figured at my my uh, my lecture recital interview they would ask, and I could at least say that. Yeah. So a funny update: I recently and uh, contacted the Library of Congress, and I tried to get Babbitt's notes on it, and there was like eight handwritten pages mm -hmm. on the piece. Uh -huh. I got them, and I still can't. I still don't know. <laughs> uh -huh. So I'm actually going to send them to Dr. Mead at Indiana and say, "Can do you get anything out of this? Because it's just kind of – it was later in his career. It was written in 99. And yeah. it's not like his first pieces where you can kind of identify each note and follow the – Right. It's really, really difficult. So I did kind of more of a performance analysis of it, like how I would interpret it. Yeah. I mean, and Babbitt's, Babbitt's the guy who's like – you know, if you, you, you don't want to be, if like cage just bores you to death and just like, why this is easy, you know, and Roram's easy, yeah. you know, like just all these guys are easy and you're like, I want something that's actually hard. Then you go to the Babbitt, right? Yeah. yeah. There's, there's layers of serialism in there, right? I mean, his dynamics, his rhythm and the pitches yeah. and. Right. You're like Pierre Boulez. Uh, <laughs> make me nap. <laughs> yeah. And it just makes you a better player to have to do all this stuff. You know, anytime I tackle something, that's, that's back to the say yes and figure it out kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. I just put a metronome on <laughs> and started to learn these rhythms, which were really difficult for me. Yeah. You know? But then you get a piece, a piece of music you have to read for a, a, an orchestra gig or a band gig, or like you're playing with a choir or something. And you're like, you're ex exactly right. You're like, you know, not that that stuff's easy to actually perform, but to, to ingest it, it comes a lot quicker, right? Like, I yeah. know what this is. Yeah, that's a chord progression. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. One, four, five, one. Wow, what a, what a treat. <laughs> Funny side note, I'm, I'm currently reading Steve Schick's book. Oh, yeah. I, which I never, I've never read. And so I, I had gotten not too long ago. I got through the the, the bone alphabet chapter, which is just like oh, God. bonkers. <laughs> yeah, you know that because the world is round chapter. Um, it's kind of like a brief history on percussion ensemble. Then he talks yeah. about like getting his sticks from his mom in Iowa and everything. Mm -hmm. I have percussion methods read that. That's her first reading assignment. Oh, so sweet! It's very it's very cool. 
guy and he's such a great writer. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. I don't think I read the bone alphabet chapter. <laughs> I think I, it's, <laughs> I mean, I read it and I was like, this is kind of furthering that I will never, ever like, like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that piece. I'm uh, not that I loved it, but I did. It made me, it reminded me though, when I was reading it, that I did get to see him play it at PASIC some point. I mean, maybe in the last, sometime in the last 15 years or something. Yeah. It reminded me that he played it in this very almost romantic way because of the way that he's, and he, you know, describes kind of in detail how he approaches, how approaches that piece and approaches music. And I remember watching it and thinking in the moment, as much as I was not like a fan of the piece, I was like, that's the best that I'll ever, that that's ever going to be played. <laughs> yeah. I'm so jealous of that. I mean, I'm, I'm jealous of pianists that have repertoire they've done for 40 years. Um, I say that to my college students, you know, I remember Steven saying, you know, you know, he would, he'd be coaching some of those uh, children's songs on piano or a Bach thing. And he's like, I, when I learned this 30 years ago, and we'd be like, Oh my God. You know, you're a college student, you learn a piece of music for a couple months, you play your jury, and then you go on. And, and it's hard even as a an older percussionist now, as a professional, it's not like you, you're cheating by not playing the same thing, but there's just so much out there. So I'm okay playing older pieces, and I have to do that. I have to bring some pieces out, but I always had that the mindset is I want to go somewhere else, I want to do something new. I don't know if I've ever played, maybe for auditions I've maybe played pieces twice, but it's almost like I'm still in that jury mindset sometimes where I just want to move on to the next thing. Being able to internalize something as part of like something in your repertoire, you know, I'm very jealous of that. <laughs> yeah. You know, no, it's, it's great. Very yeah. Weird. Well, Jim, let's jump to the final segment. Random right. questions. And first question, an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. I think as a kind of on a service level, I guess for rehearsal etiquette, <laughs> like talking or playing, you know, just drives me nuts. I remember my first or second year being here observing a student teacher because that's sometimes part of our job. And I went to this middle school and the band director was using a microphone and they had a metronome running the whole time and the kids were all talking. And it was just like everything all at once. I had to step out of the room and go, oh, my gosh, this is so not productive. This is killing me. There's a reason you have a microphone, dude. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that's like the worst of it. But even like people like I'm giving information to people figuring out parts or and I understand sometimes you have to talk during rehearsal. Then I'll say, go ahead, figure it out. You know, talk to each other. But I guess that's a little pet peeve. So like, that's like a, is that a, like a classroom management? Yeah, kind of. I guess so. I guess. Yeah, so. Sure. And I'll still go to observe student teachers or I'll see really good directors and I'll see the woodwinds start talking. And I just want to, I just want to stop. Everybody stop for a second. You know, yeah. this person on the podium is giving you great information. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so it's just kind of a pet peeve. And now I think my percussion ensemble knows it. So to get them to talk sometimes is really difficult. <laughs> so we have to try to have a good time or I make fun of myself or something, you know? Yeah, but I guess on a, a deeper level, it would be kind of what I was talking about before is kind of having this uh, kind of myopic view of percussion. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to PASIC and and seeing some younger players saying I'm a I'm a jazz player. I just like new music and not realizing how much you can get out of the whole community, you know. And as percussionists, we have this this arc path we take, like I was saying you know, that we, we get into all this new stuff because there's so much there. And it's partly mm -hmm. because of our large ensemble experience. You gravitate towards 
you know, I, there's no wonder why the indoor th thing is so popular. I would have been all over that if it came out when I was, you know, they get to play. That's what I tell. Why do people like to play marching snare drum so much? My God, the you would year, year round. They get to play. They get to play their instrument. You know what I mean? So you start to get excited about all this. But I wish someone would have told me a little earlier or just reined that in a little bit mm -hmm. to where, um, you know, maybe maybe getting an A in freshman ear training and theory and focusing on that stuff before I had, you know, I had to go to grad school and learn that the hard way, you know, mm -hmm. um, to where I was trying to get to higher levels of some of this music and realize I had to take a step back and work on my musicality, you know. Um, and being at a school like this, it's awesome because I run into these multi-instrumentalists, even kids. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'll play bass on this. I play bass. Oh, you do? Okay. Or yeah, I have to go play in my horn lesson right now. I'm going to play French horn. Oh, awesome. You know, or I'm singing, I'm singing an aria this week in student seminar. Oh, okay. You know, it's humbling. So that's something that gets under my skin a little bit. And, but that's just perspective. Yeah. You know, I am always amazed by perspective and, and maybe it's because I'm reading that book I told you now, but mm -hmm. what that can do for someone, you yeah. know, it's having good perspective. So I guess those are two things. On a somewhat related topic, what was something that got on your skin when you were doing all the drumline writing? Oh, man, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. I don't know. I mean, I, I did have a good time. It, it was in a different time where I was doing all that drum writing. It wasn't so, you know, I was kind of on the fence between not handwriting, but it wasn't like virtual drumline was just coming out at that time like the expectations of output weren't what they are right now, you know? Um, and I could actually, I was telling someone the other day, I could write something and not know what it sounded like until I got to camp. And I guess it was more that myopic view a little bit of just what you actually value as a marching percussionist mm -hmm. and, and making comments or critique about, you know, the, the, the kind of the toxic part of that community that can sometimes get to people and, there's no way I'm anti-marching. It's a huge part of my life. I would totally do it again. I would do some things differently. But in every situation, you know, moderation is usually the answer. And I guess being in that community, you know, not realizing the overall view of the, how we're teaching the kids or students or whatever you want to call them. And even in the writing, you know what I mean, what we're going for, especially in a highly competitive thing, which I'm not really a fan of at all. I, I steered away from that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So I think it was that, you know, and if it's the music I listen to, or if it's the music I try to play or how I teach, I always try to bring all that together. I never want to shut anything down. You know, being at a school like North Texas, I, I tell this story too. It's like so much free music to listen to, you know, I would go there and I'm, I'd be, look, there's a chamber singers concert tonight. I, there's no way I'm going to like that. And then I'd go and then I'd love it. And I'm like, Jim, you're an idiot. You're an absolute idiot. Go to everything you can, you know? Yeah. So I try to be as, as open to that stuff as I can. I guess it would be that, you yeah. know, that's one thing I don't miss about that activity and the writing process. What are the ways uh, that you've thought about because of all of the different experiences you've gotten with world music, uh, as well as the marching stuff and some of the other things we talked about, but what are the ways that you see things like um, inclusion, diversity, and equity showing up in your teaching and, and the way you think about some of the classes that you work on? That's so important. And I think it's because I had a really strong 
uh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about gender first, like a female yeah. presence in my life with my sisters and my mom were just really strong people. Yeah. And with all my travels of dealing with people in different race and different backgrounds, um, any kind of negativity in any of those lights, I, I often still just get so surprised. And it's really about experience, you know, mm-hmm. that um, if you grew up in a small city where people have never met an African-American person, you right. know, um, they're not going to know that, <laughs> you know, there's nothing there. There's 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 no difference in anything, you know. Um, so it's funny you say that because we're always doing initiatives like that at our college and uh, try to find ways that you include, you know, that stuff in your music, your teaching. And as a percussionist, we are so thankful that we service all these different ensembles. And it's kind of bred in with all these different cultures. And um, so I, I, I don't want to say I never consider it because I think it's always been included. Um, I just wouldn't know how to not include it. Hmm. Honestly, you know what I mean? I guess getting away from the gender thing, if you're talking about specialty and percussion, um, I was just talking to one of my students yesterday. Um, we were talking about mixing up part assignments. Yeah. And and at a school like this, I knew this one student hadn't played a lot of timpani in school. So what did I do? I gave her almost all the timpani parts. You know what I mean? Um, and I tell the people who come with a front ensemble focus, you know, my goal is to have you walk up to your high school snare line and out drum all those kids. So let's mm-hmm. do it. I don't see anyone differently in any way. We read a lot about John Dewey at this unit, this college, and they do a lot of readings about that. And I, I, I love, you know, my, my interpretation of what, the gist of what Dewey was talking about is, is the balance between a standard and an individual and how mm-hmm. you can be too far on either side, right? right. Yeah. Um, if I tailor everything too much to each individual, where if it's uh, gender or culture or race or whatever... Um, they might not be helped reaching that standard. Or if I'm too strict with the standard and don't account for their individual path, I'm also wrong. So I really try to ride that that line in any of those subjects. And I've just been really lucky. You know, I always had strong females. I actually gravitated more towards my female teachers. You know, something about having a male teacher. I don't know what it was. I, I didn't learn well from them. It might have been from my mom and from my sisters. Um, so that's kind of my take on that. I hope I didn't offend anyone or make sense. I hope I made sense. (laughs) You You know? Oh, that's good. Going elsewhere now, most impractical item of clothing you own? Oh, there's got to be a Detroit jersey somewhere with a mustard stain that's impractical at this point. (laughs) Um, Or Gibson classic or something. Yeah, sure. There's like my first Wings jersey when they won all those cups. Yeah. Definitely not. An Iserman hanging out. Not suitable for public anymore. Um, I would say <laughs> when I was in Thailand, when I did a couple things in Thailand, it was like an anniversary year for the king. So everyone was wearing these yellow shirts. I don't know if you've been overseas at all, but the sizes are different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? So they wanted to get me the shirt, and they came back with like a medium because they thought maybe I was in a medium-sized American. I'm, and we tried it on, and we all laughed, and everyone took pictures. And then I said... Okay, why don't we why don't we try a large? And they got back with a large, and it was still like uncomfortably tight. So I still have that somewhere, and and my wife I think dared me to wear it in our local Thai restaurant one night. Oh my goodness! Because <laughs> <laughs> they all knew wow. what it was, and I think we were just picking up carry out. But I think I wore like a windbreaker over it, and like you know got my guts up to take that off and just pick up my order in my size medium. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So I would call that impractical. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. 
All right. Well, relatedly, your biggest kitchen mess up. I'm a pretty good cook, actually. Um, my mom was a great t- cook. I'm half Italian, love cooking, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty careful uh, in the kitchen. I w- this, is a, this is on a music note. I think the same reason I like to teach is the same reason I like to cook because I love people seeing the joy of this stuff and sharing it. Like mm-hmm. I will make a dish and I will kind of like hover over their shoulder and I'll say, well, let's hear it. What do you think? Too much salt? Yeah. Is that good? Come on. What do you think? Yes. Yes. We got it. You know, and I love that's such a rush for me. Yeah. When I first started to experience music, if it was seeing anyone or playing it, when I'm like, this is like nothing I've done before. How can I teach people how to do this? So that's kind of how I feel about food. I'm very much a foodie. My kids are learning how to cook, so there's been some team mishaps. Um, there was, a, I think there was, about a month ago, um, there was a bagel thin that was completely on fire on, on our <laughs> on the floor of our kitchen. Because <laughs> I don't know if you know, but when they're thin, they toast faster. So this is one of the busy mornings, and it came out, and it wasn't like charred. It was flaming. So I had to take my hand and scoot it onto our tile floor and step on it. Wow. I think help my kid onto the bus and clean it up after that. So, yeah, that's my life right now. Flaming bagel <laughs> thins. <laughs> I was probably in my slippers putting out a flaming bagel thin. So, nice. Yeah, trying to organize a day of percussion. <laughs> yeah. As one does. Yes. 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 Yeah. Oh, that's, that's hilarious. Uh, what's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? My life right now is, you know, we haven't been able to go to the movies a lot. I think we saw Coda about a month ago. That was a great movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you recognize this. Did you see this? I mean, I, I so I see the shirt. I, what's the significance? It's the painting from Goodfellas where, you know, his mom, when they're eating around the dinner table and the mom painted this picture, right? You got one dog going this way, one dog going the other way. And this yeah, guy, yeah. And Old man looking right at yeah. yeah. What do you want from me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My wife got me this. So I love, I love Scorsese stuff. Yeah, the Godfather stuff I love. I, I really like documentaries. I'm I actually a couple, not a couple times. One time in North Texas when I didn't think I was going to make it, I walked over to the history department <laughs> and got their degree plan. Um, so I love history. I love mm. history documentaries. I can watch old black and white Civil War stuff and the Ken Burns stuff. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Um, a bad movie. I mean, I have kids. There's a lot of bad movies. You know, we were rewatching some of the Star Wars movies, so I am so sorry. But the second one, number two. Of the, wait, which ones? The new. The, the actual number two, the like. Uh, oh, the, of the new set. Yeah. Like the one, the, the like the, yes, I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think yeah. It's Attack of the Clones. Is Attack of the Clones, yeah. Yeah. I didn't think it was great, man. The dog yeah. and the. You know, when they're on the, the monster and they're throwing each other on the tulips love scene. And it was just like, eh, this is stretching a little far from Star Wars. So I love yeah. Lucas, but I don't know. It yeah. was almost like he got his hands on all this new CGI stuff and wanted to do the whole thing that way. You right. know? Oh, yeah. And then when we got back to J.J. Abrams, it was like, OK, let's like direct a good movie and have real props. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I think that's what's so cool about the new Star Wars stuff is. Not that I'm a huge violence guy, but I mean, the empire is violent. So yeah, yeah. like I'm my uh, son and I watch all that stuff. So when like Vader's going through the village and he's like snapping necks, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah. that's what it should have been like. You know what I mean? Because right. <laughs> you're reminding me that when you talked about all the CGI stuff that you remember that when when those came out in the late 90s, that he went back 
and like redigitized and added stuff and like yes. and I remember that being a huge deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know? A whole nother set of movies you gotta buy. Right, yeah. So, well, and I mean it's genius work. I mean, like let's let's yeah. be honest. Like that's yeah. You know. I have the original three VHS of the three, like as they the were in the movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which is kind Four, of five, six, yeah. 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 So good stuff. Well, you know, in a sort of related tone, what's something that, and it's something kind of, you know, pop culture based, but it could be something else beside that, but something that if you run into someone and they say, Hey, I like this, whatever that is. And you immediately are like, we're good. Seinfeld and Curb. Oh, sure. Yeah. That that stuff. Yeah. Like when that came out, it, it felt like that kind of humor my friends and I have been doing for years. You know what I mean? That yeah. kind of dry, observational. There's some yelling. There's some insulting. You know, I think that's why I get along with New Yorkers so well. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. But when that stuff came out, it just it, it, there's there was nothing like it. So anything that has anyone who's a fan of that will just you know yeah yeah connect. Yeah. You know? I always reference this. I don't know if this is going to sound funny or not, but my best friend Tim Sherman and I remember it was in high school. It was like uh, uh, the Halloween football game. Or mm-hmm. Everyone had big costumes on yeah, and yeah. we're like, I, I don't know what we're going to do. So we went to the costume shop and we found these masks of just different faces. So they were just a human face. So from far away, it just looked like a different snare drummer. We thought that was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just like a guy with a mustache and a guy with like a blonde hair. So yeah, from yeah. far away, you had like, I don't know, in the end you had a pirate and then you had just these two dudes. So the fact that we thought something like that was funny in high school, just, you know, that kind of humor, just, I felt like it really connected. So, and people that don't take themselves too seriously, that would be the first thing. I, I really, I was telling someone, oh, Cliff, because Cliff has known me for years. And when we're like in front of ensembles, I just, I have to be careful that I'm just not talking to my buddy, you know, and I, <laughs> I had to rein it in a couple of times when we were rehearsing. I'm like, Hey, it's my buddy over here. We're just, we're just having fun. Yep. And, and sometimes I, I can't even approach that line. So sometimes I think my students maybe think I'm strict because they don't know me from years past. Cause I know if I get near that line, it's going over and we're just going to go get pizza or something and have a good time, you know? <laughs> so yeah, people that don't take themselves too seriously. Man, going to NIU, part of the recitals were actual like shtick. It was completely opposite from North Texas. Like, you know, everyone, I mean, there was obviously drumline shenanigans, but part of it was you have to make funny recital, recital flyers and you have to have, mm-hmm. my friend Doug Brott did Batten Them Out from the Will Coxon book. Uh-huh. That one. Yeah. And he had me and my other uh, a friend, Aaron Puckett, we were announcers during the whole thing, like baseball announcer. We were like Harry Carey. Yeah, yeah. So it was great. He came out and we stretched and we made comments about his non-flexibility and funny sounds. And it, I mean, that kind of stuff really connected with me, you know. And Robert Chappell's just like, you know, Spike Jones fan. And, you know, oh. I mean, <laughs> there had to be some of that at every concert. So it was great. Well, and Holly's, that's all up Holly's alley. Too. Oh, yeah. And when those two connected, you're a marimba guy. So, you know, uh, is it part of time or it's part of one of them that it's like doom, 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 doom. It's like really, yeah, there's something like, yeah, some part of time where it's low on the instrument and all of a sudden it's really rhythmic. There was a concert where Robert was or Rich was learning that. And the other guy was reading a paper on the end of the marimba. 
and all of a sudden they just stick a right hand in and play the rhythm and then they go back to reading the paper. It was the funniest thing. So they would do that stuff all the time. Lots of chicken suits and xylophone playing and, <laughs> you know, at a higher institution. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? South America, for one. Um, I've been to the Caribbean. I've been to Asia a couple times. I've been to Africa. And actually, believe it or not, it sounds boring, Europe. Okay. <laughs> Europe is just a little bit different than us. And you go to these other places and, man, they were really <laughs> different. You go to Asia and you look at like something as simple as like a doorknob. And it's like the design from the beginning was so different. You're like, wow, this yeah. is so cool. It's like a different planet, you know, yeah. in so many ways. But I think South America, because of all the, the music roots there, um, we went to Trinidad, but we didn't make it to Brazil. And now I know people from Ecuador and Colombia and stuff like that. I'd really like to get down there. There's so much great drumming down there to just go down there for a month and yeah. be awesome. On a related travel note, what's when you go back home, when you go back to Michigan, where is somewhere that you have to eat so that you can then like feel like you're actually home and then you can you can like talk to your family and you know like Yeah, Detroit style pizza, man. Mm. Have you had it? I don't think so. Oh, like what? What is like? What's this? So what's the difference? So it's kind of like a deep dish pizza. Okay, and there's all kinds of. It's cool folklore. I don't know if it's true or not, but like they were pans from the assembly line. <laughs> right? Oh, sure, yeah, pans. But it's a great story. So even if it's not true, I'm going to go with it. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like a, a deep dish pizza, and you put the cheese all the way to the edge of the pizza. I mean, you could Google it and find a bunch of yummy images. And then you get this this crust around the square. Okay. So it's kind of like deep. It's like a focaccia crust. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, sauce on top kind of thing. Um, and I learned how to make some at home. I like went on Amazon. and So I'm like the, the ambassador of Detroit pizza in nice. my neighborhood. And like we just had some people come in from Texas and they're like, we want Chicago pizza. And I'm like, just give me one night. Give me one night. See what, see what you think about this. So, mm-hmm. Pete, if you ever come into town, man, you're coming over to get some Detroit-style pizza. Okay. <laughs> what, where, when you well, – is there a place in Detroit that you go? Uh, there's a bunch. The original one is called Buddy's. Okay. It's real close to where my sister lives. So, you know, swing by there, get a, get a small individual one or something. You can't eat very much of it or you're just going to go to sleep. It's kind of like Chicago pizza and that. But, I mean, pizza is just awesome anywhere. You know, we had a uh, we had an Italian exchange student and I made it for her and she said it was good, but I didn't know if she was telling the truth or not. Sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I hear that. Yeah, I've been um, to that place in Columbia. What is it called? Uh, oh, Shakespeare's? Yes, I've been to Shakespeare's a couple of times. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good, it's a great college town pizza. We we, yeah. they, we go there a lot. Part of the reason because is because everything, particularly the adult beverages are extremely cheap. Yeah, there you go. Makes the pizza <laughs> taste better. <laughs> <laughs> or if you don't have the pizza, you just have the drinks. It's also still very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have, we know a lot of a lot of people. I mean, I met Julia through Jeff Moore a long time ago, and hmm. I just met ne- Megan, and it was yeah. a great visit in the fall. And Troy, I've known for years. I listened to him on the podcast. That was great. Because Troy's got a strong North Texas connection. Yeah, he, I was in the line with him, and in yeah. his wedding, and. Yeah, really good friends with him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's he's pretty hilarious. He gets it like it's funny when he gets when he, he will combine the um the drumming stuff with all of his philosophy philosophy and ethics 
And yes. like, there's some, like the conversations are just super fascinating. Well, Cliff has a great quote on that. He said, don't talk to Troy too long. He'll convince you you don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. But yeah, him and uh, my other friend, Tim Sherman, back in Michigan, I was, I'm really good friends with both of them and they, they, they're both philosophy majors. So mm. they're both way smarter than me. And I, like, if I need a book to read, I'll go to them and they, they know my my level, so they won't give anything too hard. But um, yeah, Troy's great, and uh, again, um, not scared to make fun of himself or ever have a good time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? Oh, there's so many. How do I pick? I mean, being part of the marching activity. Are you kidding me? How many falls there are, and I mean, those are all strange, right? When you're moving at high velocity on a football field and you fall with your drum <laughs> and have to try to look cool and get up. I mean, there were definitely a couple of those. I just told this story the other day. We had Giovanni Hidalgo in North Texas and he was playing with the ensemble and I was playing double seconds. Yeah. And he took a solo in the middle of a chart and I was, my jaw dropped and it had to have been 30 bars into the chart where I realized where I was and I didn't come back in. There are so many. I don't know if I can pick one. I mean, I haven't had one yet where I like start crying and run off stage, but that might be coming. <laughs> um, I remember there was one Bach thing I was playing, and this is a funny. And I think I, I talk about this in, to my non-percussionists because we learn in in shapes, mm-hmm. and all the time we don't. It's not necessary we connect it to our ear. It is important we connect it to our ear because we're a keyboardist. We can learn in shapes, and some. I, it wasn't a cello suite. It might have been part of a cello suite. Yeah. Um, I like switched keys once in the middle <laughs> and it kind of made sense, but it sounded horrible. So yeah. I was like in part of a cello suite and I switched keys and I was in a new key and I listened to the recording and I said, oh my God. And then I went back to the other key. So that was a really weird performance. I don't know what deep depths of my brain decided to switch keys in the middle, but I remember Rennick told me once, he's like, man, playing Bach is like a wrestling match. <laughs> you got you're going in there and you're you're up for the fight you know what i mean so everyone should do it right (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, that's wild all right uh jim last question um one piece of art movies books podcasts youtube clips theater visual art poetry anything has impacted you the most recently well i'll give one kind of cheesy um last year uh, my, my my kids are old enough now where we can kind of travel a little more freely. So we're trying to go around the country and see some things. Mm-hmm. I know this sounds a little bit cheesy, but we went to Mount Rushmore, which was awesome. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, to be up close and to see that. Um, and it's pretty, I don't know, with all the rhetoric and things you hear about to be like a proud American, you know what I mean? To go somewhere. It felt really good. And it was really an amazing piece of work. You know, I don't know if you've ever been there, but you can learn mm-hmm. all about how they made it and everything. So that was one for sure. Um, the art installment at PASIC, I don't know, did you get a chance to see that? Was it at in a Center? room? Yeah, it was in one of the rooms. Oh, no, I heard about it. I didn't get Michael, to see it. I think Michael Gould from Michigan had a lot to do with it. It was absolutely amazing. Like uh, Keith Aleo brought me in there and we sat there for a little bit. And yeah, did you hear about what it was? So it was, was it like the ice sculpture or something like that. Yes, it was essentially about climate change. Yeah. Um, and it was these discs of ice that would naturally melt and this resultant sound that would happen on all these drum heads. So there was like a soundscape to it and a visual element. And there were just so many levels uh, 
the amount of water that was coming down on each drum head, the rhythm that happened, um, the element of time, continuous, non-continuous. Like there was just so many things. I was just, I was kind of blown away. I was like, wow, this, this is really cool. So I remember that hitting me like, you know how it is at Pasic. You're walking around saying hi to people. You're looking at a marimba solo. You're going to this clinic. I just kind of sat there with, you know, my backpack hanging off me for like 10 minutes going, wow, that was amazing. You know, and that's what good art is supposed to do. Right. So that was great. So any PAS people who are listening, you know, Joshua or Thad, more of that, please. It was great. <laughs> Pleasure. It's so great. I was thinking on the way here, it's kind of like when you go to dinner at PASIC, right? And talk, yep. to, you might've been talking about this recently. I thought I heard, but it's like, I have like a chunk plan to talk to another percussion guy, like just sitting and talk. It's great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome. Like I never have this kind of time. So yep. it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. We got to keep in touch. What an absolute pleasure getting to hear more about James Yakis and his life and career. It was a lot of fun, and I look forward to keeping up with him as time progresses. And maybe the next time I find myself in Chicago, we'll catch up. Looking forward to that. This week's rave is the 2018 film McQueen, a documentary about the life and career of fashion designer Alexander Lee McQueen, directed by Ian Bonhot and Peter Edigui, now streaming on HBO Max. As I believe I mentioned last month, I got to travel to Sacramento, California, with the Mini Mizzou Pep Band to support our men's basketball team in its NCAA tournament run. It was a great trip all around, well, aside from losing the second round game, but it was a really good trip. And while I was in Sacramento during the off days there, I am someone who is a sucker for a great art museum, and I wandered into the Crocker Art Museum on the Riverwalk area of downtown. Among the many great things that I saw there included an exhibit on both the photography of Alexander Lee McQueen by his close friend and Ray, taken during the final 13 years of his life, and many pieces of clothing that he designed and constructed. Fashion is not an area of expertise for me, This is shocking information, I know. But I found myself very captivated by his and Anne's artistic eye. This led me to seek out and watch the documentary of his life from 2018, which is very good. The documentary takes into effect McQueen's entire life, but finds its focus on six or so of his best-known runway shows that he constructed throughout his life. While I was not aware of any of this while it was actually happening, These were all a very big deal in the fashion world, and those involved in this world interviewed for the documentary make this case compellingly. Rather than spend a lot of time trying to explain what is happening in these fashion shows, you should watch the documentary or read up on McQueen. But some of the items he'd do would be, let's say, making political commentary through something like the 1995 Highland Rape which was a commentary on England's abuse of power over his native Scotland, as demonstrated through really challenging outfits. Or 1997's The Doll, which featured models restricted by metal cages and wearing silver-stamped eye makeup. Or 
2001's Voss, which had all of the models appearing trapped in a glass cage while the audience watched from the outside. And his last show, 2010's Plato's Atlantis, which involved something called the Armadillo Shoe, which I recognized once I saw it, and apparently was made famous by Lady Gaga, and it showcased the models and hairdos that looked like bunny ears, along with some tiger-style eye makeup. More than anything else, these collections show someone with a very distinct artistic conception and vision and the ability to bring it all to fruition. He took it upon himself to carry this as a way of taking care of his family, his colleagues, and working himself mercilessly and punishingly. Unfortunately, after the death of his frequent collaborator, Isabella Blow, and the recent death of his mother, the person he was closest to, he ended up taking his own life. If you're not able to see the Anne Ray photograph show, which is still being exhibited across the country in various locations, make sure to go to HBO Max and check out the documentary McQueen. You'll be glad you did. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.